And today on the Conditional Release Program's Deeper Dive, we're looking again at QAnon and where it all came from. Uh, There are so many Q searches out there. It's a bit like a guild, a sort of closed door approach to the analysis of how QAnon came to be and how it led to the events of January 6th, an attempted insurrection, an attempt to overturn an election. Now, many of the Q searches around today believe that QAnon was essentially an organic product, that it basically came from a series of bots and it became contrived and hijacked by a number of people and so forth. And But there's a great big steaming pile of evidence to suggest that's not the case, that it wasn't organic, that this was a contrived PSYOP or series of PSYOPs designed to create an army of supporters for Donald Trump and to overwhelm and control the outcomes of an election. Didn't come to pass, but that's not to say it's not still around and that's not to say that it doesn't have a future, that QAnon doesn't have a future. And today we've got Hamilton Hume. That's an alias, of course. Hamilton Hume has has been a friend of the program for for some time and uh, he's done meticulous research on QAnon and other PSYOPs in the, in the United States, who drove them and where we're going to. So thank you for your time today. Uh, Hamilton, if you could explain to us how QAnon is really not a sort of series of bots and an organic thing that just became unpleasant after a while. <clears throat> uh, all right. Hey, Jack, uh, thank you for having me. And basically, our world is being torn apart with conspiracies and other types of disinformation. And we have not yet even begun to properly reckon with where it's come from and where it's going. We need to understand that this is not just an accident. It is part of a deadly and decentralized attack from far-right fascists who have deliberately weaponized conspiracies and other types of disinformation as part of a global power grab, which has been devastatingly effective. Disinformation has always been an issue, but over the last five years, it's approached epidemic proportions. And since about May 2020, it's reached the point where the shared notion of truth that we require for a functioning society has been shaken to its core. It comes in many forms, which often overlap, and one of the most notorious is the phenomenon known as QAnon. From the bowels of the internet, it has grown to become a movement that served as a catalyst for red-pilling millions of people into a completely alternative reality. Baffled onlookers have watched with mouths agape as our friends, family members, and even parliamentary representatives have been radicalized by absurd conspiracies. Not just the typical far-right conservatives, but the yoga-teaching spiritual healers as well, who are faced with the question, how could something so ridiculously stupid have such a profound effect? When unusual demographics are being persuaded to support a particular political candidate, let alone one as odious as Donald Trump, we have reason to suspect that something's afoot. People are being moved. When astronomers looked at the orbit of Uranus, for example, they noticed that it had a wobble, which wasn't explained by their existing models. They figured that there had to be another hidden planet out there whose gravity was making it move. So they looked, and sure enough, there was Neptune. Similarly, When we look at what's moving these people and follow the links and stories back to the sources to see where they came from, we find that QAnon is propaganda and we know who's responsible. And the anti-mask, anti-vax COVID conspiracy movement, which is currently causing so much chaos, is part of the same broader disinformation machine. Several articles have been written that thoroughly document the work of people like Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, Sean Stone, Robert David Steele, Thomas Schoenberger, Lisa Clapier, Eric Prince, and Peter Thiel. They're all in the show notes, and they're full of links and sources. All of this amounts to an unprecedented assault on our society. 
not just on individuals and communities, but the very foundation of our democracy. Our world's on fire. And we're looking at a bunch of people with a well-documented history of lighting fires throughout their long careers, and particularly during this campaign, standing there with a can full of gas and a handful of matches, a how-to-start-fires handbook in their backpack, giving brochures for pyrotechnic services to the Trump campaign, and a $2 million quote for fire starting sitting in their outbox. They're even giving speeches, bragging about how they lit it. And people are still viewing destruction as an organic phenomenon instead of arson. This is a dangerous machine which urgently requires investigation. Yet starkly absent from almost all coverage of QAnon is any examination of who did it and how beyond the surface level of the Watkins. And there are a small number of prominent voices who vigorously oppose any suggestion that it was a coordinated operation. The common perception is that it started as a troll, as a joke. It was a lonely LARPer who got lucky, which doesn't really make sense. Why would a troll or anyone go to the trouble of carrying water for Michael Flynn? He was a registered Democrat appointed by Obama who openly sold out America's interest to foreign powers and got fired by Trump for lying to the administration. Furthermore, why would Flynn put so much stock into something which he knew was a LARP that he didn't control and which could pull the rug out from him at any moment? He's a former general and director of national intelligence. He is literally a world expert in special operations and irregular warfare. He was a security advisor on a campaign team that won the election that stunned the world. What's more likely, that he fell for, or is grifting off, a 4chan LARP, or that he put it there, or at least knows who did? When we're looking at this thing which does exactly what he wanted it to do, rehabilitate his reputation and radicalize people against progressivism, in the exact way that he describes doing it, Occam's razor suggests that it was probably done by him. Yet, in most Q-watching circles, the idea that he had anything to do with it is often considered as heretical as heliocentrism. Anyone who so much as suggests it gets jumped on. In fact, some even go so far as to claim that identifying the people responsible doesn't matter and that investigating it at all is a mistake. They mock anyone who calls it an operation and tries to look into it to the point where talking about it at all becomes toxic. Given the issue is essentially whether or not the Nazis are running around with an invisible brainwashing gun, it's worth having a full and frank discussion. So, assuming that everyone is acting in good faith, let's take the time to examine the arguments in question and to figure out if it really was just a prank or an operation. One of the first things that people often say is, you're proposing a conspiracy. So, describe the creation of a film, from the influences of the author, of the novel it's based on, to the screenwriter, the producer, the director, the set builders, the actors, their agents, the distribution company, the cinema outlets. Now, get the string and corkboard out, because that's a conspiracy. Every election campaign is a conspiracy. I mean, what's the implication here? That no one ever works together to try to influence people? That political operatives never do dirty tricks? It's nonsense. This isn't to say that it's the product of an ancient cabal that controls everything in the world in lockstep with all of the politicians and the media. We're on a rock that's hurtling through space. There's no one at the wheel. It's chaos. There are just different agencies doing whatever they can to impose their will on the world with varying and often disproportionate degrees of success. Psychological operations have a certain connotation, but there is no denying that they're a real thing. Their use in both the military and the private sectors is thoroughly well documented, and they are all over the Trump campaign. Pizzagate, the Seth Rich assassination story, Obamagate, the big lie, election hoax, and the critical race theory outrage movement were all planted by Republican operatives. Same as the climate change hoax narrative, for that matter. How did QAnon come to be? Republican operatives planting it seems perfectly plausible. So, next they say, but it's all so stupid. They made so many failed predictions. Why would they do it like that? The thing is, a character on an anonymous message board is disposable and untraceable. It essentially gave them a free shot to run whatever crazy narratives they like. 
There was no reason to be reasonable or tone it down. It's like a concept car. They didn't have to expect it to work either. They could roll the dice as many times as they liked. And if they blew it by going too far, so what? Try another one. They carry virtually no financial or political cost, like a machine gun with bullshit bullets. They can just spray fire across the internet to see what sticks. And the chaos that it causes by destabilizing truth is a valuable outcome for them in itself. Plus, looking stupid has the added bonus of providing the perfect cover from the outside to the extent that here we are, three years later, after it's managed to mindfuck millions of people into supporting Trump, still debating whether or not it was an operation at all. So it goes when you use someone like Thomas Schoenberger, I guess. Now, we don't know whether or not that part was deliberate, of course, but either way, it worked. So then they ask, but why use a small cesspool like 4chan instead of a massive platform like Facebook? Now, this is partly covered by the answer above, but it's worth elaborating upon a little. A forum like 4chan is valuable for a number of reasons. It's full of people who resent the political correctness of mainstream society, they enjoy trolling, and they know how to use computers. So if you want an army of digital soldiers for your alt-right revolution, it's the perfect place to go. Steve Bannon recognized the political utility of this years ago, which is part of the reason why he made it to the Oval Office as special advisor to the president, and you and I didn't. Yeah, that said, they didn't necessarily start by saying, I want to persuade people I'm going to use 4chan. They more likely started by saying, 4chan is a thing that exists. How can we use that to our advantage? How can we exploit the people in this environment? Q is essentially an alternative universe. So what it needs is a doorway into this one. And 4chan is a great place to put it. Which leads us to the next point. Well, this was just the latest in a long line of 4chan laughs. Now, there are two responses to this. Firstly, there's a strong chance that at least some of the other insider laughs were early experiments from the same team. And secondly, that doesn't mean that this isn't an operation. Whoever did Q could have easily seen this phenomenon and recognized its potential to be used for their political purposes. So now we come to the classic, it's not necessary. It could have just happened on its own. Now, this is debatable, but it's not a meaningful argument. Perhaps it could have, that doesn't mean that it did. And the people who say this have no evidence to support their claim as nothing like this has ever happened before. And there's no way to run a control group in a double-blind experiment. We can't isolate a population without Flynn and co to see if yoga teachers become Q-pilled. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't, but it's not even the question anyway. The issue is whether the people that we see organizing Q organized Q. And saying that it's theoretically possible for it to have happened otherwise doesn't actually engage with that claim. But to have the argument anyway, it's possible to believe the moon landing was faked. It's a long way away, and we know what a film studio is. It's not possible in any conceivable universe to imagine Donald Trump taking down a secret cabal of pedophiles and not tweeting about it without some industrial scale influence. So then people like to say, well, people just want to believe it. It fulfills a need. You say, sure, certainly. Aside from the just part, this is absolutely true. No one's disputing that. It provides comforting answers to a confusing world a sense of community and a thrilling narrative based on secret information. In no way does any of that negate the possibility for all of that to be exploited. These things are not mutually exclusive. Companies like Cambridge Analytica or Glue or Palantir have scraped social media for vast amounts of data on human psychological needs. They know our deepest desires. They know exactly what buttons to push and how to push them. And they have deployed that with devastating effect in countries all around the world for over 10 years, and we still haven't come to terms with that. The headline from the Cambridge Analytica scandal was the data harvesting, but what got overlooked is the fact that they then used that data to create campaigns specifically to influence elections. 
They are a behavior change agency. Now, we don't know if QAnon is Cambridge Analytica's work specifically, but they have pulled a lot of levers that look a lot like this, and it is completely consistent with their ideological agenda. So, and people say, the simplest explanation is that it was a LARP that hit the jackpot, and then the Watkins took it over. So when the simplest explanation requires the thing that we're talking about hitting the jackpot, it's probably worth a second look. Nevertheless, there is truth to this. It was a LARP. It did get lucky. And the Watkins are almost certainly involved. As the landlords of QAnon, they've come to have some measure of control over the moment. They could have authored some drops or been sent some to post. They can help shape the conversation in the threads. They just weren't alone. Bless his heart, but Ron is not capable of mind-fucking this many people. All the psychological manipulation experts and guerrilla marketing executives aren't sitting around saying, oh, well, pack it in, boys. We've been outdone by some LARPer in Japan. And why would he do this anyway? What's his motive? 8chan never made money. Q didn't even start on 8chan. And the reason that it grew so much is that the drops were immediately moved off their forum and onto other aggregator sites where people were explicitly told not to bother going to the original source, which is the opposite of what you do if you wanted traffic on your site, but is exactly what you do if you were running a political propaganda operation that needed a portal to an alternative reality, but still wanted it to have a broad reach. So it doesn't make sense. It's a hell of a lot of time and energy to put into a political campaign for a country you don't even live in if you're not getting paid. It fails to account for its stunning impact, and it completely ignores all of the evidence for the involvement of all of the people we see. So then people say, well, it started as a joke, and then it got hijacked and amplified when people realized its political utility. I mean, all of the evidence suggests otherwise, but it doesn't actually matter that much. The question of whether or not we need to give them the creative credit for coming up with the character might be of historical interest, but what we need to reckon with right now is the fact that we are currently under attack. Besides, if it was just a LARP, why didn't they come out and yell, ah, psych, suckers, you all got trolled? And then people say, oh, but it didn't work. Trump lost, which is obviously absurd. First of all, attempted murder is still a crime. And second, despite his abominable performance, Trump still got more votes than any other president in history. And third, winning the general election is not the only goal here. Millions of people remain irrevocably radicalized. School boards are becoming infected, and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Madison Cawthorn, and Josh Hawley are loudly executing their agenda in Congress, with 44 more QAnon-affiliated candidates on the ballot in the next election. It has made its mark and continues to do damage. So then people say, well, there's no solid proof here. It's just a series of connections. So what you're doing amounts to QAnon level. <gasps> How many coincidences before mathematically impossible? And if I showed you a forest, you could call it a bunch of trees. The funny thing about this is, when you study statistics, that's literally how science works. We rarely know anything for certain. All we do is work out the probability of something happening by chance, and then use that p-value as a benchmark to decide whether what we're observing is significant or not. The p-value of a manipulative sociopathic fascist who likes to LARP as a super spy that hates the CIA being connected to at least a dozen of the key central characters, but having nothing to do with Q, is well below that threshold. If you can show me someone else who fits that description, then I'd show you another primary suspect. We can tell with almost absolute certainty where someone worked or went to university based on a handful of mutual friends on Facebook. This is basically that on steroids. We don't have a video of them making the drops, and perhaps we never will, but what we do have paints a very clear picture. It's like a novel-length Wheel of Fortune puzzle, and we're trying to work out whether it's just a jumble of letters or an actual story. Any individual letter that we find does not constitute proof per se, but every letter that we have found is consistent with the story, all of them.
No one has found a single letter that is out of place. And the chances of all of those letters being in all of those places without telling this story is beyond the realm of plausibility. And indeed, there is one letter which arguably does come close to proof. One of Q's hallmarks was only making vague, sweeping predictions like no name will be back in the headlines. And then a month later, when John McCain dies, followers can say, see, Q told us. The Anons think that the drops are deliberately cryptic to stop the deep state from getting to them, while the Q watchers can confidently claim that Q is just a charlatan who's full of shit. It's a tidy little arrangement, which worked perfectly well over almost all of the 5,000 drops. But in drop 3110, they appear to overplay their hand. They call out Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, invite him to play a game, and say the strike will be fast. The very next day, our good friend Stephen Biss files a $250 million lawsuit on behalf of Devin Nunes. Now, you can explain that away as dumb luck if you like, but it's beginning to look increasingly desperate. It's a little vague, but not vague enough. They slipped up. It's like in Speed, when Dennis Hopper calls Sandra Bullock a wildcat. It reveals that whoever wrote that drop knew about the lawsuit, which tells us that they were in communication with Biss and Nunes or the people in that circle, who are exactly the ones that we've been pointing at. So then people say, you're just doing Q in reverse. You're baking like QAnon followers. It's blue anon. Q says that Democrats eat babies. This is saying that the Trump campaign weaponized conspiracies on social media. To equate the two is beyond absurd, and anyone who does so should not be taken seriously. Are we looking at the evidence? Of course. And most of these Q watchers refuse to actually engage with any of the evidence. They just reject it out of hand by calling it a conspiracy or using one of the other arguments above. None of it is actually disputed, with one notable exception. The dark web doesn't mean 4chan. Now, in their pitch deck to the Trump campaign, Psy Group advertised their abilities to use the deep web and dark net to run influence operations, which, I argued, sounded a lot like 4chan. And people have gone on to make a huge deal about how this is flat out impossible and argued that it therefore invalidates the entire argument. Which is ridiculous because, first of all, Psygroup would have been able to use 4chan regardless of the meaning of that word in that brochure. But more interestingly, they're objectively wrong. Senator Maria Cantwell said in a hearing, this is a particular problem on the dark web where we see sites like 8chan, which proves that regardless of its original technical definition, in the world of US politics, that is indeed how that term is used. 8chan's own Wikipedia entry makes multiple references to the site being removed from Google searches on the clear net and only being accessible on dark web networks. Now, if the people in question were acting in good faith, they could easily say, huh, fair enough, I stand corrected. But they don't. Instead, they dig in, double down, or just flat out ignore it and continue their attacks, which says a lot about their intentions, which do not appear to be an honest examination of the evidence. So when all else fails, upon being presented with emails that appear to show Thomas being connected to it all in black and white, some Q watchers respond by saying, well, that could be fake. Which, ironically enough, is exactly the same logic that the cultists use to say that Trump is still president because the inauguration was CGI. When something contradicts your beliefs, just say that it's fake. They're quite happy to discard Occam's razor and insert extra unnecessary steps when the evidence doesn't conform to their narrative. Which leads us to ask, well, why hasn't anyone else covered it? This is a crucial question, and to answer it, we need to look at where the major Q watchers are coming from. Typically, they were the first ones on the beat and began by looking at it from the perspective of a, of a dumb internet prank that they were there to debunk. So, ascribing any operational organization to it is antithetical to their perspective. QAnon Anonymous is a podcast which will be familiar to many, which launched in August 2018. 
They've produced over 300 episodes and countless hours of Twitch streams, which have included some decent entertainment and some valuable journalism and a lot of laughing at how stupid the whole thing is. They are, without doubt, the number one authoritative voice when it comes to all things QAnon. Every journalist who has ever written about it follows them, and they feature in almost every documentary or newsreel that has ever been made. They are in a position to control the conversation to a significant extent. So, given the impact of this phenomenon, which mind-fucked enough people to nearly topple the capital, and their role as the preeminent specialists who cover it, what have they actually been doing? Are they using their platform to vigorously investigate the mechanics of this thing and the networks behind it? Well, no. What they have done are episodes on Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, WWE, Grand Theft Auto, Napoleon, Werner Herzog, uh, The Monoliths, The Loch Ness Monster, Jim Caviezel, Mel Gibson, Mothman, Skinwalker Ranch, Chris Pratt's Tomorrow War, Michael Avenatti, and fucking Signs. Now, after that many episodes, there is bound to be some filler, and we all need to laugh with some light relief every now and then. But what's notable is that there has been no substantial discussion of... Steve Pleshenik going on InfoWars with a visibly proto-Q narrative in October 2015, as he still does today. Primary Q promoter Robert David Steele's history of infiltrating progressive circles with his Unrig and New Earth network platforms, his work with Sean Stone, or his role in seeding the Save the Children and Adrenochrome myths with the International Tribunal for Natural Justice. This is going to be a long list, so strap in. The Snow White 7 I Am Twitter account and how it infiltrated the spiritual space with these narratives, along with sites like Collective Evolution and Stillness in the Storm. The role of Standing Rock and No Dakota Access Pipeline, and its role in the radicalization journey of people like Mickey Willis and the Q Shaman. How the Occupy movement managed to turn many progressives onto these narratives after being infiltrated by people like Lisa Clapier showing films like Thrive 2. How the power of things like Anonymous and Project Chanology served as a blueprint for these kinds of movements to hijack. Theosophy, the I Am cult, and its connections to several key Q promoters and movements like White Ops. Stephen Biss, representing Devin Nunes, Trevor Fitzgibbon, Robert David Steele, and Svetlana Lokava, Kash Patel, Tim Holseth, and Dan Bongino. Other 4chan puzzle labs like PyMobi and Sevens Exposed and their intersection with FBI and on and WikiLeaks. Joel Zammel and his suite of influence companies like Cygroup, White Knight, Black Cube, and Wikistrat and their corping of the Trump campaign via Eric Prince and George Nader and some Saudi billionaires. Steve Bannon and his history of disinformation-based propaganda via Breitbart, the campaigns that Cambridge Analytica have run, and his current work with Guo Wenggui and their role in seeding COVID conspiracies, the history of psychological operations in general, the trajectory of Peter Thiel and his role in operations like MAGA3X, Palantir, and the Manhattan Institute, his investment in Rumble, and bankrolling far-right candidates. Roger Stone's activity over the last five to 35 years, including going on Infowars to nurture the pedogate narratives that would become Pizzagate or his connections to Guccifer 2.0 and WikiLeaks. Trevor Fitzgibbon and his impact on progressive circles with operations like Unity 4J. Jason Sullivan and his work with Roger Stone, Bill Binney, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, using Twitter tools like Power10 to control narratives around things like QAnon and election fraud, and bragging at the recent God and Country conference that the attendees there were, in fact, the plan. Eric Prince and his role in propagandizing for the Trump administration, training Project Veritas operatives and his quest to eliminate Islam from the face of the earth. All of that is important for understanding how QAnon has been so effective. But QAA's longtime listeners who have consumed all of their content would almost never have heard of any of it. They appear completely committed to giving their audience the impression that it was simply a dumb prank that got out of control.
Rather than deal with how dangerous Mike Flynn is and his work with what he openly called an insurgency of digital soldiers, they open literally every episode with a soundbite mocking him as a bumbling boomer who found a way to connect to the internet and was just lucky enough to happen to stumble upon this phenomenon which inexplicably worships him. Perhaps most conspicuous in their coverage, however, is the way they deal with the one character who is so close to the centre of it all, Thomas Schoenberger. Rather than ignore him altogether, they actively told people not to look at him, based largely on a segment in one of their Twitch streams with Atlantic reporter Dale Baran, which includes the following exchanges. In group chats, Fred was like, Dale investigated this, and I was like, it's bullshit, don't bother, ignore it, don't give it oxygen, just never report on it. I just listened to Fred. If I had an episode where I claimed that Thomas was Q, I would delete that episode. The people who investigate the origins are delusional. How about we exclude the foot pit guy who lied about being cicada or whatever? It's actually dangerous in some ways. To focus on who Q is seems like to do it a disservice. Now, this is bad enough as it is, but more seriously, they move into actual disinformation. They say that Arturo, who they keep calling Arthur, must be wrong because FBI Anon never posted feet. But Arturo never said they did. He was talking about Mega Anon. Dale has got it mixed up. They are laughing loudly and at length and even dismissing a source and thus this theory entirely over something Dale got wrong. They have never acknowledged this, let alone corrected or apologized for it. Arturo has put a lot on the line to blow the whistle about all this and been subjected to relentless hounding and harassment as a result. And these people who make over a million dollars a year covering the thing that he had a front row seat to and is trying to tell them about openly misrepresent and mock him. It's a disgrace. The upshot is that now, whenever the topic of Thomas and Lisa comes up, people will simply declare it's not them. But hey, we all make mistakes and get stuck in our little ruts. Maybe it just hadn't occurred to them. Perhaps the inertia of looking at it as a prank for so long makes one blind to certain details. It could be an honest error. So what happens when they are presented with this information that they may have missed? Are they gracious and appreciative? No. They are condescending, hostile, and even outright abusive. All they have to do is lift this rock and have a look at what crawls out from underneath. And not only do they refuse to do so, they attack the people who do. So what, dear listener, is going on? It's hard to say. Perhaps on some level, they're embarrassed to admit that the thing they've missed this thing which has been staring them in the face. Maybe people do just enjoy laughing at how absurd it all is. Calling it an operation not only has somewhat terrifying implications, it carries guilt because it means that the people they've been mocking are actually victims of the people that they said were just stupid grifters. But rather than speculate on strangers' psychology, let's try and stick to the facts. A keen is maybe wondering who the Fred that Dale refers to in the Switch stream is, and that is indeed a good question. It's none other than the guy who built 8chan, Frederick Brennan. So let's have a look at him. He was a young programmer who found his tribe on anonymous message boards like 4chan. It gets a bad rap now, not undeservedly, but it is worth mentioning that it did provide a community to hundreds of thousands of otherwise ostracized kids and created a culture with a unique kind of creativity. And while it was wild, there was a modicum of moderation. Admins would delete things if they crossed a line. Fred resented that. He wanted a place where people could say anything. So in October 2013, he came up with 8chan. He allowed boards and everything, including the most violent racism and misogyny. It became the go-to place for people to share the worst of the worst content, up to and including child porn, mass shooters manifestos, and live streams of their massacres. In 2014, a few female gamers began calling for better representation of women in video games, which made a lot of young male gamers on 4chan very angry, to the point where they would find the women's personal information and relentlessly harass and abuse them. This was called Gamergate. 
4chan decided that was too much and banned the movement from their boards. So these people flocked to 8chan, where they were welcomed with open arms and continued their savage crusade. Fred could have stopped this with literally the push of a button, but not only did he not take it down, he encouraged it and personally participated. He said in one interview, it's really amazing how they've used the platform to really go after these fuckers. Like, I encourage it. They try to make me take down the board, but I'm not going to. I believe Gamergate is, at its core, a positive move. Image boards are a haven for all the terrible things you listed, like nihilism, misanthropy, misogyny. And that's exactly what makes them such wonderful places. I wouldn't change a thing. He also published an article on the infamous Nazi website, The Daily Stormer, brainstorming ideas for the piece on 8chan beforehand. He's entitled to his views, of course, but one does not simply write for the Daily Stormer by accident. It was a deliberate attempt to attract Nazis to his platform. That was the audience he openly courted, which helped further radicalize both them and his users. Now, despite how this might look, Fred isn't actually the focus here. Everyone has their journey, and his has been harder than most. Many people, far more privileged than him, have gone down this path, and I'm not here to hold it against him. All I'm doing is trying to figure out who's telling us not to look at Thomas. That is the thread we are following, and he is who we find. So, let's see how we get to that point. The truth is that a hate site is a hassle to run. It was too toxic for advertisers to touch, and it was harder to make enough money to keep it online. He kept losing hosts and exceeding bandwidth, and was about to go out of business altogether, when in walks a guy called Jim Watkins. He'd served in the US military as a helicopter repairman, was trained in computers, and then left to set up shop in the Philippines and run a series of websites with names like Asian Bikini Bar. In 2014, his son, Ron, told him about the woes of this website called 8chan. They saw an opportunity and swooped in to snatch it up. They flew Fred over to the Philippines and gave him a place to live with a full-time carer. But unsurprisingly, Jim Watkins is not a particularly pleasant person to work for. One time, when Fred asked for some time off, Jim showed up at his house to berate him. Fred felt afraid, and they acrimoniously cut ties in December 2018. The hate machine he built in 8chan, however, remained in full effect. It's difficult to overstate how horrific this place really is. The deepest, darkest parts of the human experience are on full display as people share the most extreme radicalizing content, collectively egging each other on until eventually some turn on their cameras and head out into the world to murder as many people as possible to a reaction that has been described by Robert Evans as riotous glee. 2019 saw a series of mass shootings, the Christchurch Mosque in March, the Poway Synagogue in April, and El Paso in August. They all came from 8chan. Naturally, as the creator of the board where this kept happening, Fred began to receive calls from the media. He didn't say that 8chan should be taken down after Christchurch, where 51 Muslims were massacred to rapturous applause. He said that he wasn't even sure that he would have removed the link to the live stream if he was still moderating it. But he did begin to tentatively express second thoughts, saying, I sometimes wonder whether creating 8chan was a good thing. After the Poway Synagogue shooting a month later, he still didn't say it should be taken down. It wasn't until the wake of the El Paso shooting in August 2019, when another 18 people were killed and internet provider Cloudfair pulled their hosting services, that Fred joined the chorus of people calling for it to be removed. But why? What brought on the change in tune? Did he have a profound change of heart? Was he mourning the loss of life and suffering that had been inflicted on the friends and families of the victims? Not really. He mostly just had a vendetta against the Watkins. He wasn't against image boards. He just didn't want this one to have a name that he was associated with. Because having the world's media call you for comment about the website you built causing all these mass murders gets in the way of making fonts. These are his words, which you can see in the tweets in the article. This is not some road to Damascus moment. He's since been a thorn in the Watkins side, which makes him look like an ally to the anti-Q community. 
but in HBO's Into the Storm documentary, he told Colin Hoback that if they changed the name of the website, he'd leave them alone. But because 8chan was the home of QAnon, the founder and former administrator speaking against it is a compelling story. And if he can even demystify the identity of Q by pointing the finger at the current board owners, then all the better. When he began saying that Q was the Watkins, everyone who had been trying so hard to debunk this bullshit could now say, see, it's just a gross pig farmer who runs the website. The guy who built it and worked with him and knows how the site operates said so. And since then, it seems as if most people have been content to leave it there. So by clearing the incredibly low bar of saying 8chan is bad, so is Q, and so are the Watkins, Fred has managed to successfully pivot into a credible commentator and become a primary source for any journalists that cover the topic. If letting Fred be an authoritative voice on anything QAnon related isn't the fox guarding the henhouse, then it's a very fox-sympathetic henhouse designer telling us how we should view foxes and their approach to hen relations. Because instead of using his skills and newfound fame to launch a thorough forensic examination of how his website was used to perpetrate such a significant psychological attack, he uses it to defend Lisa Clapier and Thomas Schoenberger and keep the focus squarely on his nemesis, the Watkins. He tells Dale, who tells the podcasters, who tell all of their listeners, who tell all the rest of the Q-watchers, who then settle for thinking it's just a prank that the Watkins took over, and now here we are. Is Fred in on it and deliberately lying, or has he just been manipulated by a master manipulator? It's hard to know, but it's not too late for him to tell us. Clapier's involvement is a very odd thing to so strenuously and definitively deny, and it sounds like he has specific information that relates to it, which we would be very interested to hear, especially given the fact that she spent time in the Philippines too, where some of Joel Zamel's companies were also headquartered. How on earth is he so sure that this person, who has repeatedly claimed to take responsibility for the Q movement, speaks so authentically to so many of its core tenants, runs one of the primary Q promoting accounts on Twitter and Telegram, and directly connects to so many of the key characters, has nothing to do with it? Bearing in mind that one doesn't need to physically post the drops themselves in order to have a hand in writing or directing or promoting the show. And now, whenever someone like Evan Marlin, who was a CIA ops officer and former GOP policy director, comes out and says, rather than a mere accidental creation of conspiracy amateurs, I believe QAnon is an alternative reality created by disgruntled US intelligence officers, YouTubers, and serial scammers in order to ensure the loyalty of Trump's base, cover for Russia, and support Michael Flynn. Writers like Mike Rothschild come out and say, you're wrong. Mark Andre Angentino replied by calling it one of the worst takes of 2020. How did we get to the point where supposedly serious journalists are platforming the narratives of infamous trolls rather than looking at the evidence before them and listening to actual national security professionals? It's at least as perplexing as QAnon itself. And like with QAnon itself, we can put some of it down to an unlucky convergence of organic factors like inertia or the embarrassment that we touched upon above. But we should also consider that we are up against professional narrative manipulation agencies. In any operation like this, there are going to be people who do believe it and people who don't. And controlling the way that it is perceived by the people who don't believe it so that they think that it's just a lucky larper or a pig farmer and his son, but definitely not Flynn, is a crucial part of it which is not to be overlooked. The Internet Research Agency showed us that controlling a narrative by setting up profiles online is ridiculously easy. Planting operatives in real-world progressive spaces takes a bit more effort, but is still an unfortunate fact of modern life. And sure enough, that is indeed what people like our old mate Eric Prince have been up to. So, are these voices plants of some kind, or just useful idiots who are aggressively bad at their jobs? Again, I don't know. 
And to be honest, I'm not even sure which is worse. Regardless, it's time to come to terms with the fact that we are in the midst of a full-scale information war. There are a number of highly trained, disaffected ex-intelligence service members who are using their skills, networks, and experience to advance their fascist agenda in ways we have yet to come to terms with. These people might look dumb and sound stupid, but they are incredibly dangerous. They are treating this as a military-grade psychological operation. We can see drafts of strategy documents from Peter Thiel's MAGA3X, which give us a chilling insight into the way these operations can be structured. And of course, this manifests itself in more old-fashioned physical military operation too, as we see an increasingly armed and dangerous presence of proud boys in places like Portland and along politicians like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is not an isolated or trivial phenomenon. The fascists are armed and bolder than ever before and drunk on disinformation. We are under attack. Ultimately, their goal is to preserve the power of rich white men to do whatever they want. Rich white men have had their way for pretty much all of history, and the whole point of progressivism is to be a check on that. So for the last 50 or so years, they've whined about how they're no longer allowed to sexually harass their secretaries, or fire someone for being gay, or dump the waste from their factories right into the river, or let the police beat black people to death. That's what gets their goat. Almost everything boils down to that one simple principle. If it limits the rights of rich white men to do whatever they want, they will attack it by turning ordinary people against it, and their weapons of choice are to call it political correctness gone mad or socialism. Trump is, of course, the ultimate avatar for rich white men being able to do whatever they want. When you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Mike Flynn specifically said that was his whole reason for getting involved with Trump in the first place. The reason I'm here is because there is a sense in this country that we were going in a direction that was irreversible, to the point of, it's cool to be called progressive. Progressive is socialism. Now, I know this isn't really his accent, but whatever. I know the threats that we face. Entire nation states that do not appreciate the American way of life. And we have to fight for it. I felt something. I came up to New York and I see Trump in the summer of 2015. Wonderful individual. Loves this country. He convinced me in five minutes how much he loved this country. How much he saw what was happening. And how much he felt that he could do something about it. And from that moment on, my direction in life completely changed. Flynn was right about a number of things. Society had progressed to the point where the kind of shit that Trump loved doing was, thankfully, no longer acceptable in polite company, let alone in a presidential candidate. So Trump's election was going to require the creation of an alternative reality. Flynn said in that same speech, this was an insurgency, folks, a regular warfare at its finest. How did they do it? An army of digital soldiers and citizen journalists decided to take over the idea of information through social media. What do you think he's talking about there? It's Pizzagate, which would go on to become QAnon. That's the foundation of this whole thing. The lie worked. They twisted facts and played into people's pre-existing prejudices and exploited existing narratives. They won the impossible election, and for four terrifying years, the fascists controlled the White House. Their naked vanity, petty squabbles, astonishing staff turnover, and generally breathtaking ineptitude made for one of the worst presidencies in history. But when you can create an alternative reality, that doesn't really matter. You just lie. They aggressively spread disinformation from every channel at their disposal, from the White House press podium to the president's Twitter account and all the usual conservative platforms, fake news sites, troll farms and bot networks, and of course, 4chan. In the lead up to an election and it looked like they were going to lose, they changed gears again. They restructured the Pentagon so that Flynn loyalists in Special Operations Department would report directly to the Defense Secretary. 
They filled the courts with their judges. They tried to tamper with the physical election infrastructure and began laying the groundwork to dispute the result by calling it fraudulent before it even happened, all the while quietly normalising the use of brutal and unmarked force against protesters. When they did lose the election, they just fled out to it and tried to take it by force by mind-fucking enough people into believing that it was stolen. What we need to recognise is that this is still going on today as part of a global far-right power grab. All of the organisers are still walking free and doing their thing. They are actively infiltrating school groups and local councils at Flynn's command. Audits like the one in Maricopa County are not just about disputing the last election. They are setting the foundation to dispute any elections that they don't like in the future. And if they control the Houses of Parliament, there is a terrifyingly real chance that they won't certify the results of a democratic victory. Donald Trump just won 70% of the vote at CPAC. Whether or not he ends up being the candidate, this is their ideology going forward. Mask off naked fascist white nationalism. But for this campaign to be truly effective, it needs to penetrate progressive circles. It's already made significant inroads over the years through events like Occupy, Standing Rock, Natural News and Unity for Jay. People like Tim Poole, Cassandra Fairbanks, Glenn Greenwald, Cynthia McKinney and Robert David Steele himself have all famously taken an interesting ideological journey from fairly prominent progressives to fascist propagandists. Now, I'm not saying this all happened as part of an organised plan, but it is a phenomenon that we need to recognise. The biggest typhoid Mary, however, who has infected the left-leaning spiritual world with these narratives and ideologies at all of the events listed above, while escaping any serious attention, is likely to be the woman that we've mentioned a couple of times already, but who I doubt you've ever heard of otherwise, called Lisa Clapier. She is one of the biggest reasons why the new age yoga wellness world has gone bananas. Of course, there is a lot more to it than that, and future reporting will hopefully look at all of these people and networks more closely and perhaps try to examine the journey that they took to get to this point. For now, we need to look at where this is going, because all of this was bad enough before 2020. Then governments did start restricting freedoms and throwing the world into chaos for something which didn't seem that serious. And suddenly, the idea of satanic elites running the world seemed more credible than ever before. The confusion surrounding COVID proved the perfect catalyst for pulling millions of people from these communities into conspiratorial rabbit holes, where disinformation disguised as truth could be deliberately planted to advance a political agenda. It's all largely based around waking up to the lies of the globalist New World Order, which, if you look closely, is basically just one where rich white men don't get to do whatever they want. This is why so many previously progressive people are sharing clips of Tucker Carlson and RV Yemeni, and they think that Antifa are the enemy, or that BLM is a distraction, or that climate change is a hoax, or that LGBTQ plus people are somehow invalid. They are in Facebook groups and Telegram channels being pumped with content as part of the deliberately targeted propaganda campaign. The truth is that Q was only ever one arrow in their quiver. The character may have gone, but the model remains. You can dress up a powerful insider revealing special secrets of the conspiracy to control the world in a number of ways. And we already see this in the form of aliens from the Arcturian or Palladian star systems on platforms like the Academy of Divine Knowledge and the Galactic Federation of Light pushing a far-right fascist agenda disguised as a spiritual awakening. This is extremely dangerous. If you thought that Q was powerful, wait till you see what happens when people believe that they're being given instructions by intergalactic super beings. There are good souls in these groups, as well as in the anti-mask COVID conspiracy community, many of whom I'm sure genuinely believe this stuff in good faith. They are not the enemy. They have been lied to and manipulated by the most vicious propaganda campaign the world has ever seen. Facebook and YouTube are at least theoretically moderatable, 
but this stuff is all over Telegram and BitChute as well, and we do not have a response for this. It's a serious fucking problem. The Department of Justice do not seem to be doing their jobs holding anyone accountable, and most of the journalists who should be covering this appear to be asleep at the wheel, and that's where we're at right now. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing good people that progressive policies were some sort of sinister plot for world domination, while simultaneously convincing everyone else that he didn't actually do anything and that it all just happened of its own accord. We are living in a soup of psychological operations, which has us at each other's throats. Everyone thinks they're on the right side, fighting for a noble cause. And like with all disinformation, it's notoriously difficult to work out who is being influenced and who is doing the influencing. And after decades of propaganda, the answer is almost certainly not as clear as we would like anyway. When we're not sure what's what, perhaps the best we can hope for is to be honest, fair, and kind, and be absolutely ruthless with those who aren't. If we can manage that, then we might have a chance. 